Welcome to this week's session of Pricked the Interviews. My name is Kim Brown Sims, and as a nurse of over three decades, I've always said that I've pricked many, many people, and it was always for their own good. Pricked is an interview series that touches on those situations that cause us to react. Positive, negative, inspired, angered. Energy is created, and through telling the stories of what has pricked us in our lives, we gain insight to the common bonds in humanity. Great and powerful action can result from even the littlest prick. Join me now as we jump into another incredible story about being pricked. Feeling it? Downtown metropolis, business suit on, hair just so, Starbucks in hand. Jittery excitement. Could it be the caffeine? Maybe. Could it be being invited to the table as one of 150 to be chosen for an executive development program? Nailed it. Yes, deemed worthy. Adrenaline pumping, this young executive enters the massive conference room teeming with others in suits. I have arrived. Wait a minute. All of these suits are male suits. One after another, after another, after another. When it was all said and done, five women were participating in this executive development program. Five. 3% of the total deemed worthy of promotion. Seriously? Seriously. Leadership 101 says leadership should represent the community it serves. And the last statistic read was that women were 51% of the population. Not three. Disbelief. Anger frustration, and then inspiration. Let's blow this farce of a leadership program and head to the bar. There's work to be done on the equality front. Welcome to this week's Bricked. The title of today's show is Superiority Complex, Tipping the Equality Scale Back to Center. It's an honor to invite the magnificent Ashley Schmidt into the studio today. Ashley is the president and founder of Women in Healthcare Incorporated, an international organization that promotes professional development and empowerment of women in healthcare. The organization supports and facilitates the growth of its members through mentorship and by women-owned businesses sharing successful techniques, leads, contacts, products, and services. In her spare time, Ashley is also the vice president of business development for HKS, an international design firm overseeing the design of hospitals worldwide. To say this is one busy woman is an understatement. In my lifetime, I have met some pretty impressive and powerful women. Ashley is a standout. Her passion, purpose, and drive are at the top of the ladder. Let's take a minute now to tap into that abundance of energy, hearing the prick story that inspired the creation of women in healthcare. Welcome to the show today, Ashley. It's wonderful to have you here. Hey, hey, Pricked World. This is Kim Brown Sims. And today I have the most amazing, special, incredible woman on the planet. Her name is Ashley Schmidt, and she is the president and founder of Women in Healthcare, which is national, but it's actually international because we have chapters up in the up in the upper echelons of Canada now. So uh, Ashley, welcome to the show. Hello. What's to introduce when you introduce me as the most special, amazing? I'm just going to drop the <laughs> mic right there. Well, well as you should. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I have been so incredibly impressed. So, I'll, you know, for our listening audience, uh, Ashley and I met because 
her organization, which she'll tell you about, is doing this incredible, incredible work. And I was so intrigued. I was like, I've got to be a part of this organization. And so I've gotten to know Ashley over this. I think it's been a year. Has it been a year? I think I joined last year, but at any Time rate, no meaning anymore. I don't. No, remember. it doesn't. It's still March of 2020. <laughs> yeah. It hasn't ended yet. <laughs> so, but I was just so intrigued by what she did. I'm like, this is incredible. But the thing that is even more amazing than the fact that she's impacting thousands and thousands of lives is that uh, she can work anybody under the table. Like I have never. I think I work hard. You work ten times harder than I do, at least. So that's what I'm most <laughs> impressed about. <laughs> oh, I mean that is such a compliment. I uh, I feel like you oversell me, but I'll take it. I guess maybe that's one of the things I need to work on. So. Yes, I am Ashley Schmidt. I am the president and founder of Women in Healthcare. Additionally to that, I also work for another full-time job called HKS. I'm a vice president there, uh, focused on business development and strategy. Strategy. Mom of two, getting my master's, all that good stuff. All that stuff defines me, I guess. I like to hustle. (laughs) You? Oh, okay. Are you ready for this? You know what my Peloton and uh, just general nickname is? Hmm tipsy hustle. And the, re- <laughs> and the reason is because I'm constantly hustling, but it takes one glass of wine and I'm tipsy. <laughs> oh, I, I've always admired cheap dates. I, <laughs> I was built with those thick, like alcoholic veins or something. And I, it takes me a while. I love that. How are we not connected on Peloton? I don't know, but tipsy hustle, just look for me. Probably because, <laughs> probably because I'm not on the damn bike very often. <laughs> I go I walking. I'm like, oh, I forget to turn on my Peloton. I don't know. You'd be uh, depressed yeah. at my numbers. <laughs> yeah, they're not very impressive. <laughs> oh, well, good. then we can ride together. That would be perfectly fine. Who's your favorite? Who's your favorite uh, instructor? You know, I go back and forth, but I do enjoy a good Cody. <laughs> <laughs> Cody's pretty funny. <laughs> it's fantastic. He went on like a 20 minute rant about Britney Spears the other day. It was so amazing. <laughs> That's hilarious. There, what, what's the gal's name? Uh, Love. What's her What's her name? Uh, Courtney Love? Courtney? No. That's, no. <laughs> that's the Nirvana wife. Yeah. <laughs> Nailing it. <laughs> anyway. Allie Love. Allie Love. Allie, Allie Love. Love. Allie's so phenomenal. You know why I like to listen to her while I'm writing? It's because she's all positivity. You know, oh, she's yeah. just like. Positive, positive, positive for an entire hour. And then she's, oh, you did such a great job. It's just like being slathered with, you know, positive, good stuff. I can't imagine what me as a Peloton instructor would look like. It would just be like dark sarcasm the whole time. (laughs) No one would be motivated. No one would join me. (laughs) People would look at me and go, oh, my God, is she going to make it through this show? Because this this session because as soon as I start writing, my face turns bright red. I look like I'm going to have a heart attack. (laughs) We're winning. We're winning. We're absolutely winning. Okay, back to the introduction. So you are uh, the doer of everything. What are you getting your master's in? Uh, Healthcare management. Oh, uh, wonderful. Wonderful. And how old are your babies? Uh, My daughter is about to be six and my son is about to be three. And he... (laughs) (laughs) he's a handful is he (laughs) um yeah you know there's like i think there's a hormone in your brain right that 
to help you determine risk, right? Yes. It calculates like what you shouldn't do because there's probably danger. And I don't think he has any of that. So <laughs> I'm concerned for his well-being. <laughs> you mean he's a typical boy? <laughs> I hate admitting that, right? Like I always, people always talk to me about, oh, oh, she's such a girl because my daughter, I mean, I tried so hard to be, everything was gender neutral. Mm -hmm. I never pushed her in pink, but she came out like wanting tutus and glitter and all <laughs> things unicorns. And then my son came out and like wanted to punch things and like roll in mud. And mm -hmm. it was, it was such a shock to my, someone who runs a women like empowerment <laughs> organization was like, Oh yes, these gender, these gender roles do exist. It was insane. Yes. He's a yeah. boy. And I think it's part of the awareness, right? So there's nothing, there's nothing that says girls can't roll in the mud too, right? right? That's kind of what the whole point is. And yet, if you have an affinity towards sparkles and tutus, then go for it, you know? So absolutely. And that's a big part of, you know, uh, what we've been kind of working toward is saying that no matter who you are, or what you're about, your gifts exactly. are what's important and you should be sharing those gifts broadly. And it's not up to any other person to judge. You know, what your yes. gifts are, what your strengths are, be accepted for who you are, right? And if you're bringing a group of people to the table, you want to have people who all have different gifts and you don't need to be good at freaking everything. Be Absolutely. good at what you're good at. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you get so much, that gets so much clearer. I really do think it got a lot clearer with my kids where I was trying to raise them to be to be inclusive and, and to not, you know, fit into the norms in which people tell you to fit into. Right. And then I was forgetting about the fact that like, there are who they are. And right. once I kind of saw that in them, it helped so much, right? It helped mm -hmm. me as a parent. It helped me as a leader. Like it helped me in so many different facets to kind of play to what their strengths are and nurture that, right? Instead of trying to mold them into something. Well, exactly. Exactly. You know, a dear friend of mine said that those who are wise fill their lack of wisdom with people who have that wisdom. He said it much more eloquently than I said it, but it's <laughs> it's the same concept, right? If you have gifts, share your gifts. You don't have to have all of the gifts. If you need other gifts, go to somebody who has those gifts and bring them to the table and have the conversation. It's the whole concept around, you know, creating a well-rounded team. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I just think that's amazing. So, you know, one of the things we ask when people come on the show, it is called pricked. Pricked means, well, one, I've been a nurse. I've pricked a million people. I always say I prick people for their own good. But the reality is... <laughs> That we've all encountered pricks. We've been pricks, you know, <laughs> inadvertently or, you know, or maybe, you know, maybe we chose to be. But for the most part, I think people come to the table with good intent. But we've certainly all had things that have pricked us in our lives. And being pricked can be a negative thing. But most of the time, what ends up happening is that you find some level of inspiration or motivation from being pricked. And so I'm going to ask you, like, what is that thing that has pricked you? And if it ends up being the thing that caused you to start this foundation, fabulous. And if not, we can certainly go in a different direction, too. No, absolutely. I mean, you nailed it. The thing that comes to mind is very much what inspired women in healthcare. And it was, God, uh, probably 2012, 2013, one of the local healthcare organizations in the D.C., Maryland region was doing a uh, leadership training day. 
and you had to be nominated to go. So you, that meant you were like a leader on the rise. You were nominated by your organization to go and your name was put forward to attend this leadership training. I was nominated by my organization to go and take the leadership training. There were about 150 people in the room and I wound up sitting with the five other women in the room. And that was such an eye-opener for me. And we actually sat around the table and we were like, this is bullshit. Like, is this really a reflection of what future leadership is? And not only is it a reflection of what future leadership is, is this really what the organizations we work for, right? They, they, they put forth 90% men. And so it wasn't just that the future looked male, the pipeline seemed to look male too. And it was such a frustrating experience. Uh, we actually, the five other women and I wound up ditching uh, the tail end of the training, grabbing a drink and started talking about why, like, why could this, we, we seem to be surrounded by women in healthcare and then looked up the stats, right? And it's 80% of the workforce is women in healthcare. And then we started looking at the stats of leadership. And at that time, it was less than 12% of the leadership was women. That's not okay, right? None of that is okay. This is, this is our house, right? We're more than the dominant party in it. And for some reason, the proportions of leadership at the top are so disproportional. And that was a huge moment to really in, inspire. We, we started doing research. We started trying to understand. We interviewed hundreds of women to better understand what was personally keeping them from the top. What were the barriers that they saw? Then ultimately that went to, we didn't know it was going to be a big nonprofit, right? We, we were just trying to find a way to come together as a community and fix this. And that's what we did. We went out, we talked to people, we figured out some some of the biggest barriers, and then we created an organization around it. And that organization now, right, is 17 chapters across the, you know, across the world and is really thriving and growing all the time. And it's less, it's five years old, right? And, and seeing growth unlike any other. And it was all spurred from that instance, that day where I saw what leadership might look like, and I wanted to put an end to it. <laughs> I wanted to change it. And so you're right. It inspired good things. Yeah, it's a pretty big prick when you look around the room and you recognize that you're one of very few. You know, I think that is certainly kind of the premise of the systemic racism that is being brought and talked about in a such a poignant, important way now. Not that it hasn't been, but it's certainly in everybody's face and it's certainly on everybody's radar now is because when you look around the table, you know, first of all, women are the largest minority, right? And then you look around the table and you say, not only is it lacking women, it's lacking anybody of color, right. male or female. And then when you say a female person of color, it's an even smaller percentage and so I, th Absolutely. I think it really is important that we, again, call it out, bring it to awareness, but then also like you're doing, it's taking steps to creating sustainable change. So outside of creating awareness, how do we educate people? How do we get the information out? How do we talk to women who have been successful in it and tap into their expertise so that others can either follow in their footsteps or take that information and make it something even more grand, you know? And you hit on something too, what, you know, how do we talk to women who are in it, who have been through it? And 
I felt like the, you know, part of what women in healthcare was meant to kind of pull together was to make that community because a lot of the responses that we got back with this survey were like, I look up in my organization and I don't see anybody. I don't see anyone like me. I don't see my representation. And so people weren't getting this necessarily in their in their organization and they maybe weren't getting it in their backyard. And so this new ability to connect people from across the country, right? And you can hear from women and hear about their stories and how they overcame different barriers and connecting them in that way has been so impactful and huge. And actually as shitty as the last year has been with COVID, it's hopped that up on steroids, right? Our ability to connect with everybody from, you know, Canada to Oregon has become normal, right? We're all virtual. We're all hearing from different people. And it's really expanded our ability to do that. And so I really, I think that's one of the most empowering like pieces for someone is to find someone speak or hear someone speak that you hear something, right? And you're like, that's it. That's what I'm going through. Like, you know, I, I need to hear more about that. Like I kept finding myself in those situations when people were talking or I was hearing speakers like, oh my God, I want them in my life, right? Like I want them in my circle. And so I built an organization and just kept taking people I wanted in my circle. (laughs) I just kept be like, why don't you be a part of this? <laughs> I think that's how you rubbed me. And I'm not sure. I rose my I raised my hand. I'm like, yes, this resonates with me. And the next thing you know, I'm like in there doing stuff with you. And I, you know, I absolutely love it because it is part of my purpose and passion as well. And clearly it is yours too. As you're talking, I'm getting goosebumps because you know, that's what it's about for me is finding those things that raise the hair on your arms, whether it's negative or positive. Because if it's negative, right. it means I'm going to do something about this. And if it's positive, it's like, let's spread this, you know, and the, the camaraderie, the community around empowering other women, taking the lessons you've learned and saying, don't fall in this pothole. Here's how I navigated it. You might have a better perspective. And especially with our zillennials, the Gen Z and millennials, and now there's even another generation behind them already you know, they have a different take on it and they have, uh, I love, they have more of a, what do you mean I'm a woman, you're a man, you know, attitude. It's like, I'm just, I'm just me and I'm going to do this thing. You know, they're very much on the brink of innovation and, Mm -hmm. you know, just breaking the mold, which I love. I think they have their challenges as well though, right? Because even though they have these great ideas, breaking into the marketplace isn't as easy. Finding the roles isn't as easy because there are fewer. So it's how do you tap into that creativity and really expand on it to make something meaningful and that will financially support you, you know, throughout your life? And you make a good point because I I feel like we hope, right, with every generation, it gets better, right? With every generation, they start to blur the lines. We see less of the gender roles maybe and more about like we're, you know, what do you mean there's a difference between men and women? But it's so incremental and I think, you know, there's a, I wish I could remember the book, but there's a book out there, right, that talks about evolution. And there's lots of books out there that talk about evolution. But in this book, it talks about how it takes thousands of years for us to evolve, like truly evolve, unless there's some pandemic, unless there's some massive force, right, that forces us to change. And I think we're seeing that this year, like there have been so many massive forces. You've got Black Lives Matter, you've got the pandemic, you've got this terrible inequalities of health that are pressing on us so hard that if we don't evolve, 
right? We're not going to make it. And I'm, I'm, this stuff has been awful, but I'm energized about it, right? Because it is, it is going to drive us all in a direction where we must, we must evolve, we must change. And so, yes, like, I think that paired with like our next generation, our children, like who we're going to raise differently or that are going to see different barriers or whatever. I hope, right, that we are creating that future that we want to see for for our kids. Oh, I love that. So, you know, anybody who knows me knows that uh, I have multiple chemisms and one of the chemisms, which is not unique to me because there's actually a book sitting on my desk over here that's titled Hope is not a plan because I say that all the time. Hope is not a plan. I even have a gift hanging on my wall. Someone made me a tile. It said, hope is not a strategy. They kind of evolved it in their own way. But the reality is that we have to have a plan for this change. We have to have a plan and start taking steps towards creating sustainable change. You know, one of the things that I focus on frequently is the fact that healthcare in and of itself is on very shaky ground. And I would honestly put it out there and say it was kind of built on shifting sand once we started moving away from truly caring about people like the tenants of healthcare were, you know, um, religious factions who were coming in and saying, we want to help people and we want to educate them and we want to take care of them to now it's a business. Now it's become the business of healthcare and it's, you know, on the backs of illness and it's on the backs of pills and procedures because that's what we get reimbursed for. And we need to flip that whole perspective and change it around to a model of wellness um, so that we get reimbursed for taking care of ourselves instead of waiting until we're sick, working ourselves until we're dead, you know, and then or almost dead and then saying, okay, now that I'm retired, I'm going to spend the next 15 years, you know, if I make it that long, trying to recover from the, you know, 30 years of abuse that I've given my my body. Yeah. I don't know why this moved me, but to quote a, a fine Peloton instructor, I, it might have been Allie Love, it might have been Kendall Toole, I don't, I don't know, props to whoever did it. But she said in a ride the other day, when you change I to we, you take the illness, out of, you change illness to wellness. And <gasps> I right, loved down. it. <laughs> I loved it. And I just thought there's so much to relevancy to that in healthcare, in the hospital, in how we need to care for the community, right? I just thought it was such a good idea because it's true. When you take I to we, <laughs> you change illness to wellness. So that moved me. And I, I saw, I saw a, a lot of that, what you're just saying. Oh my gosh. I absolutely love that quote. Okay. Whoever coined it, uh, I <laughs> give you props now. I'm stealing it. I'm just telling you right now, I'm stealing it. Uh, that is absolutely amazing. You know, super creative, amazing people in this world. (laughs) I love it. I absolutely love it. So where do you see women in healthcare going? I mean, I kind of had a clue as to what your strategic, you know, initiatives (laughs) are, but really, you know, what's your ultimate vision? Like, do you want to take the world over? What do you want to do? When we started at this, it's been incremental. And, you know, I've said to you a million times with something this big, we're trying to eat the elephant one bite at a time, right? And there's so many big dreams and we're just trying to create the right strategy to, to approach all of them. Uh, when we started, we really just wanted to work on the individual, work on committing the community, work on the mentorship, right? Give the person the tools and, and the education that they would need and the community that would, they would need to excel. 
And, you know, a couple years in, we said, that's not enough, right? We don't want to just, we can't just focus on the individual. The barriers still exist in the organizations. And, and we aren't doing enough as organizations, the employer, the people who support these women and support all of us, right? Aren't doing enough to break down barriers or to identify barriers and to really truly advance minorities, women forward, right? They, there's just, some are doing a great job, you know, but there's just not enough. And so we realized that the next part really had to be around organizational change. So now as we go from, you know, we still look at the individual, the chapters really start, really take that on as in addition to national. But now it's about focusing on organizations, all the nonprofits and for-profits and all of the big healthcare organizations out there and helping them to identify where they're pluses and minuses are. Where are they doing really well at helping to advance women? Where are they doing poorly? Taking some time to do some assessment of that, trying to figure out where the holes are, what can we learn from each other, right? How can we kind of roundtable this with a bunch of different industry experts and outside of the industry and learn what they're doing to move past some of the barriers that are existing? Because there's a lot, right? And, and there's things that we put in place that we don't realize are barriers, there's things like bias that are there that we haven't worked hard enough to get rid of that, that are more difficult, but things could be done. And I, I often think people are still trying to figure out what they can do. And I think as, an, as a sort of industry-wide resource group, we can be that place where people can come, organizations can come and try to find tools or resources to help overcome those barriers. And we can also be a resource to help them identify those barriers. And so that's our next big task with women in healthcare is to work on the individual and the organizations and, you know, in essence, give the person the tools they need, break down the barriers, allow everyone to like fulfill their vision, right? Have a seat at the table where they want to be seated. I absolutely love that. So, you know, I'll just come right back to leadership mantras. Again, Kimisms, I guess you'll, you'll say, but it's hire the best of the best, listen to their voice, remove the obstacles and get out of the way, right? Mm -hmm. You have to understand who's at your table, make sure that there are plenty of seats at the table, but you have to listen to what they say. Like just having a seat at the table, which is kind of what's yeah. happening right now. Everybody's yeah. band-aiding it. Everybody's putting a chief diversity officer and a chief people person in place everywhere. And they're saying, we've got the representation, right. but unless you're changing policy and you're really creating policy within your organization, you're really creating that forum for dialogue to come forth and hearing the ideas and voices of the people who are affected in eliciting um, the feedback and then making that change and putting it into your policy and then acting on mm -hmm. your policy, the change is not going to stick. The band-aid of we'll put you through diversity training and we'll hire a chief diversity officer, which so many people are leaning into right now, mm -hmm. um, really isn't going to create sustainable change. So you're absolutely right. you got to understand those barriers. And we are so afraid of policy changes that could, that could create a difference, make a difference, but somehow are seen as maybe favoring, oh, Wow, favoring a minority group, right? There's been so much conversation about that um, in past years from women in healthcare when we've had these kind of smaller discussions around what could we be doing at the organizational level? There's a lot of fear to put anything in place, really. 
like you said, it's a Band-Aid. You can hire someone all day long that's supposed to be in charge of these things, but to actually create a change is, I think, very scary for organizations and they're afraid of singling people out or <laughs> things like that. And I, I, I find it very intriguing. So I, I, I am so excited for our ability to learn from one another to figure out what we can do to actually make a difference. Yeah, honestly, it's just engaging in the conversation, you know, so, you know, I hear a lot of rhetoric out there about, you know, the white savior complex or, you know, the female savior complex or whatever. But the reality is if you're opening the door and inviting the dialogue, then let it happen because uh-huh. that awareness is what is so important. And not only the awareness, but then again, once you've invited the conversation, say, what do we do with this? You know, act a nonverbal. What's the action that we're going to take from this? And and honestly, if you think about it, in um, in many, many meetings that I've attended throughout my uh, career, you go into a meeting and it's a lot of talk and there's mm-hmm. not a lot of action that comes out of it. So, you you know, you learn lessons from the things that aren't so great or the bosses that aren't so great, um, as well as those who are really great. And I would argue to say that I learn more from the things that don't go well right? in forming how I know I will act differently moving forward or how I would teach people to, you know, lead or even just organize a meeting. And so if you are not having actionable, you don't have a forum where inviting the dialogue results in action, then you're not facilitating change. You're not being a person who is paving the path for people to have a voice and for those voices to actually be heard. And I think that's the problem for me too is, you know, you heard me say it, you know, let's, oh yeah, come have a seat at the table, but then I don't want to hear your opinion. Or which happens to women frequently is a woman will make a statement about an idea or a step to take and a man will swoop right in and say, well, I think we should do blah, 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 blah. And it's like, you look at them and you think, did I not just say that? Am I, are they deaf? Like, I loved this. So a president of New York, one of the hospitals, New York Presbyterian, did a interview for us and she was one of maybe three women leaders at the time. And after they kept noticing, like, one person, the one woman would say something, you know, two people down would say the same thing and then everyone's on board, right? And um, they got sick of it and they met afterwards. And so they started, they, they came together to team up so that, okay, Kim said something in a meeting and then two down, Billy reset it. Well, then Shannon over here, right? She would say, you know, it was great when I heard it from Kim or, you know, or something like, you know, I loved when Kim brought that up and I really support the X, Y, and Z, blah, blah, blah. Just they would keep reiterating it. They would be on each other's team, right? Mm -hmm. Keep trying to bring it back for each other, right? Like, so Kim didn't have to get defensive and be like, I said that already or get frustrated underneath, like over here trying to be diplomatic. You know, it was them supporting each other. And I... I just love that story so much because we live in an environment where you are very fortunate if you find yourself in a group of women supporting women in leadership. And I really have not, you know, within current years I have, but in past years really hadn't been the recipient of an environment where women really were raising each other up. And to hear that, it gave me hope, (laughs) but it was a plan. 
But it was a plan, right? They were like, we're going to be here for each other. And here are the X, Y, and Z ways that we're going to do it because we are being talked over. You know, we aren't, we're being dismissed. And I don't, I just loved it, right? Like I loved that they came together. I love that they were, they spoke out. I love that they had each other's backs. And I feel like that is one of the solutions, right? Absolutely. It's a solution. And, you know, I actually shared a story very similar to that with a peer group of mine that included men as well. And one of the men says, take the opportunity, you know, if you have your peers with you and or if you're the only woman in the room, take the opportunity to stand behind the person. Don't sit at the table. When you come into a meeting, stand behind the person who is leading the meeting. Because then when you speak, he has to turn around and everybody else has to turn around to hear you or to see you. So typically what happens then is people hear you and they don't repeat because they had to do an action in order Mm -hmm. to focus on you. And I thought, "Mm, that's interesting. I've never tried it, but it would be interesting to see. But you talked about a really good point too. And that is we in nursing, we call it nursing eating, eating our young, that we eat our young. And in college settings, it used to be hazing. No, that's military. In college, it used to be, (laughs) what is it when you go into a fraternity? Isn't it hazing? Isn't it hazing? Maybe it is hazing. Yeah, but we do it, right? We we make one another prove that we're Mm -hmm. worthy of being in, you know, in my air or whatever. But um, actually, the worst boss I ever had was female. The worst, I mean... I had a panic attack after it. I worked with her. I'd never had a panic attack in my life and I haven't had one since. I worked with her for three years and um, her office was up on a hill. So the campus was, you know, kind of circular and there was a quad area in the middle where we had all kinds of activities and it was fun. It was kind of like a high school, you know, quad area. But my office was at the base of, on the quad, but at the base of this hill and her office was in the medical office building and you had to walk up this hill and every, and the light was always shining on it and the windows were, and I was like, that is not the castle on the hill because I can tell you it's more like, well, maybe it was the Wicked Witch of the East castle on the hill. I'm not sure, but I would walk up that hill just dreading, waiting for the flying monkeys to come out and, you know, pick me up and swoop me off because I would get up there and she would just, she could not find anything positive. She had to tear me down no matter what I said or did or tried. It was never right. So we already are looking up and not seeing ourselves represented, right? And then when you look up and you find somebody represented within your organization and they just kind of suck, right? Like, then what does that do for you? When I was younger in my career, I said, is this who I have to be? Like, I kept doubting who I was genuinely to say, is this what I need to be to be a leader? Because that's what I was exposed to. Right, the vanilla box. I was exposed to either one, a category of people who weren't supportive or kind of manipulative or just didn't want women rising next to them, right? Mm -hmm. Then I was also surrounded by people who were like, oh, I'm in a man's world. Like I've existed in a man's world. And I, I thought that was kind of shitty because I am a woman. And I operate and I value different things and I'm not going to mold to be a part of this man's world. Like, right, I'm going to be who I'm going to take. I think there's a lot of things that make women excellent leaders, a lot of attributes. And again, this is a little bit of a generalization, but I mean, a lot of studies show that there are a lot of similar attributes and, and value systems among most women. And I think 
and they've tied them back. I don't just think they've tied them back to being what are high, most highly rated in a leader. So the highest rated traits in a leader are the direct attributes and values that women have. I like being a woman. I think it makes me a better leader, right? I want to be around people who will teach me how to hone that, right? Like, and, and I, I felt as though I either had yucky, like leaders, women around me, or I had people who just, you know, lived to, to be in the man's world. I get it. That was a step they had to take. You know, yep. they broke some ceilings and I am fortunate for that, but we were in a new era and I, I wanted to be around people. I wanted to be around leaders, women leaders who could teach me how to take what I got. Right? You know, you mean celebrate the gifts? Yeah. Celebrate the gifts you bring to the table. So, you know, it's very interesting because I have reflected on that period in my life many, many, many times because, you know, it was actually really traumatic because it's not who I am as an individual. I always tried to support people and some people are receptive to it and some aren't. But, you know, where I came from was rising tide lifts all boats. You know, the more some of us flourish, the better it can be for all of us if we just open that door. Like there's enough of the pie for everybody to right. have a piece. And so I thought a lot about it. And she was a generation older than I was. And so I thought, you know what? Started off as a nurse, coming up through the ranks as a leader, and then stepping into a COO role, which was traditionally more male-oriented than female-oriented, you know, 10 years before I did. So, okay, she had to fight for it. Mm -hmm. But fighting for it, to me, it would seem that that would open your eyes to, now how can I make it easier for someone else to not have to fight this hard, but instead took it as, well, I fought for it, so you're going to freaking have to prove yourself, and good Lord, if you get anywhere near me, I am going to kick you in the face, you know, as you're climbing up that ladder, like really took the negative edge to it, took, you know, kind of yeah. the this happened to me, so therefore I'm going to do it to you. And I, and it, you know, makes me feel sad for that individual to have lived like that because I wasn't the only person that episode or that those behaviors were exhibited toward. And I just think, wow, I'm, I'm really sorry for that because it could have been a, a lot different and her influence could have been used for so much good and yeah. to better humanity, you know, kind of across the board. But yes, you have to fit into that that vanilla box back then, you had to fit in the vanilla box in order to climb the ranks to achieve any kind of goal. And it's impossible that it's, it's kind of a healthcare mentality, right? Like I remember, you know, I personally didn't have a residency. I remember when my brother-in-law was doing his residency and they had mm -hmm. diminished the hours, right? You could no longer work more than 80 hours a week for your residency, which 80 hours, like, you know, still taking care lot. of someone's health is kind of brutal still, right? And I remember the number of times people told him, like, you know, I don't care. I had to do this. Like, I had to work this mm -hmm. hard. You need to work this hard. And I think, I feel as though sometimes that's just the mentality of, of healthcare. Like, I had to bust my ass working a hundred and some odd weeks. Like, you got 80 weeks. That's, you know, who cares about your mental health or your, the fact, right. you know, me, me over here as the patient, I'm like, don't give me the one with 80 hours. Like, <laughs> No thanks. Yeah, I'm really afraid. Yeah. <laughs> like, They're not taking care of themselves. How are they going to take care of me? Yeah. I hear you. I hear you. I think it is prevalent in healthcare. I have to introduce you to an, another amazing woman who is Yale 
no, Harvard. Oh, she's going to get me for that. She's oh. Harvard trained and Stanford residency in internal medicine. And she started a company called Recharged MD. And it talks about physician burnout and focuses a lot on females, but physicians at large. Um, but she talks a lot about you know, being a female physician and she's a black female physician on top of it and how you're put through your paces, you know, as you're coming up through your residency, uh, your internships and residencies. So I think that it is healthcare focused, but I'm going to challenge you and say, I, I think that there are tenets of it around the world, but I also think it's very United States Yes. Capitalistic kind of mentality, hierarchical, top down, fear based. You will do what I say, leadership. There are some amazing people in the world who function as mentors and want to see people succeed and have succession planning in their toolkit from the minute they walk through the door. But then there are others who are like you just described. I've worked hard, I've scraped, and I've really had to kill myself. And so, therefore, anybody who wants my place is going to have to do the same thing and show me. But the reality is that doesn't make a good leader. That makes a burnout angry, you know, person. It doesn't make a a well-rounded, I want to take care of you. I want you to have a good life and understand that balance is important. You know, there'll be the person who will be 80 years old, you know, look 80 years old when they're 60 and have to spend their entire, you know, retirement. I mean, I'm fighting fighting the 80-year-old look right now. Burnout. Phenomenal. <laughs> Sleep is overrated. Um, but you're right. I mean, I think about in architecture, that's where I've been healthcare architecture most of my career. And I know that, you know, there have been so many comments from older architects just saying, you know, when I'm back in my day, I used to sleep under my desk to get my work done. Like people aren't working hard enough anymore. People leave here at five. And I was like, well, life is different too now. Like back when you were earning your, you know, your stripes in architecture, you couldn't take your computer home. Your phone wasn't attached to you. Like, and this is for anybody working right now. That's not a generational thing. Now you don't leave the office ever we all are working hard all the time. And so whether you work an 80-hour work week in the office, right, or you work it at home, you're, you're responding to patients or clients or whatever. You're doing the administrative parts of your job that you can't get in anymore or actually doing the tasks that you can't fit in during the day anymore. Like, we're all working so hard. And honestly, I don't want my... I want my daughter to know work ethic. I want her to... I want her to know how to work for something, but I don't want her to have to struggle with barriers like, like crappy bias, right? I want us to come over that first. Like I don't want the, those things. She doesn't need to experience to that level some of the things that I've experienced coming up in my career. It should be better. The same way that you know, I'm sure others before me experienced things that were worse than what I'm experiencing, right? Like it should be better. And so I see it different. I don't want you to have to work harder than me or as hard as me, right? I want you to, I want you to be able to work hard and go further because there were less things in your way. Agreed. You know? Agreed. I say that all the time. It's about incremental change, right? Mm-hmm. It's about recognizing. So those gentlemen who were talking about, and, I, and I'm assuming that it was gentlemen who were saying, you need to work really hard. So there's my bias, you know, poking its ugly head out. But you know, who say you need to work harder. If you think back before email, so I know life before email, 
email came into existence in my early days of leadership when I was in my 30s. And I'm just thinking about first time using a computer and all of that, which the generations now have always had, you know, have always been tethered. So one, there is no work-life balance. It's work-life integration. We all need to understand that, that your priority is the priority that you choose in that moment. You know, the other aspect of it is that before email, someone had to pick up the phone and leave you a voicemail, which you then had to retrieve and have some dialogue about, or they had to pick up the phone and have dialogue with you, or they had to write you a memo, or they had to write you a letter, and you had to have the time for that to be received, and Mm -hmm. then you had to have some opportunity to think about it and respond either in writing or via voicemail, and um, then you had to write it down, and then you had to actually put it in the mail, and then they had time to receive it and think about it and then respond back to you. So there was actually time built into the day to be thoughtful about a response. Yeah. Can now, you- <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I, we don't have any time to think about, you know, a response. I will write a response and then I'll go, oh, hi, how are you today? I hope you're having an amazing day. And you know, how are the kids? I have to go back and do that. Ensure that it's there before I actually hit send. That's a huge downfall of mine because life moves so fast that I lose my ability to, to, I don't see it. I'm not trying to be short. I'm just getting the answer out quickly. And so that's, that's something that I feel like is, is a huge challenge in this environment is I'm not as personable. But then again, I also get emails from people that have like a paragraph of personality, like being personable. And I'm like, get to the point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a happy medium there somewhere. (laughs) I don't have time for this. (laughs) I'm wound a little too tight. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I'm type type A too. I say I'm A minus now. I've I've evolved from A to A minus, you know. Well, maybe if you welcome me out there in Napa, I can be a solid A minus as well. <laughs> Come on down. Either that, I'll just start shipping you wine on the regular. We'll do like DC East Coast now. <laughs> oh, you'll get along with my boyfriend just fine. He is born in Philly and grew up in Jersey. And oh my God, he is so type A. <laughs> oh, Where? No, I don't know. He's just wound up tight. <laughs> It is a problem. I feel like uh, I remember when I lived in Italy for a year and um, I remember them categorizing Americans based off, you know, you, we realize it, we see it. We see there's a different kind of person that lives in the East Coast versus the West Coast. Um, But to hear other people reflect on who you guys are, like when they heard where I was from, they were like, oh, you just work all the time. Like it was a lot of generalizations that really hit me hard and made me realize like at that point in my life, Italy was the most amazing thing because I had worked so many jobs. Like I had put myself through college. I had worked so many jobs. I came right out, wanted to start working. Like I was just, I had always done something. And Italy was this great reset in my life to sit and say, Oh my God, that's who we're known as. Just like workers. Who wants to be known as that? Like, do I want that scribbled on my like tombstone? Like she worked real hard. Like, no. I wish it had worked more. She took emails on the toilet. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's what I feel like my like life is like. And I feel like that was such an eye opener for me. And every now and then I take a moment and re gut check myself to like Italy, Ashley. Right. And try to say like, enjoy what's around you. Right. Take a moment to like, 
have fun with your family <laughs> and friends. Yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you, so so how's that, you know, European um, lifestyle working out for you? <laughs> Miss all hours of the day or night. I'm on the West Coast. You're still texting me when I'm getting ready for bed. So <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, you know, it slips through the cracks sometimes. <laughs> Just think of who I would be if I didn't have it. Um, That's exactly right. Where in Italy did you go? Um, I lived in Florence and I traveled everywhere, except I had a trip planned to the Amalfi Coast and there was a big storm and then it never fit back into my itinerary. So that's my one place that I want to go and had said to my husband, I wanted to do it like last year, you know, 2020. How'd that work out for you? <laughs> really, really well. It was the year to travel. Um, so we, you know, it's on the horizon again. <laughs> um, so I tell you what, let's plan it together because I have also traveled up and down Italy by car, by train, by plane. It's been so amazing. And the Amalfi Coast is one of the places I have still yet to arrive. And honestly, um, you know, one of my favorite movies is Under the Tuscan Sun. Talk about a chick flick. And uh, Positano just like calls out to me. So, Oh, yeah. Oh, my I dream scenario is me in Tuscany and like a little home. Like that is <laughs> with like no one else for a little while. Yes, like just me. Exactly. <laughs> and then I'm, my family can join later. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but yes, that I am with you. Under the Tuscan Sun pretty much just sums up where my like retirement will be. Or in my head. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, you know, and, and speaking to being in the moment, I, it was amazing. I took my daughter to Italy uh, before she went into high school because at the time I lived in this tiny town of 6,000 people and she had been with the same kids pretty much since preschool. You know, now she's going into high school. And I wanted her to really understand, even though her dad and I talked a lot about the great big world that there was that there truly was a great big world out there. So I said, choose anywhere you want to go. She chose Italy, twist my arm, let's go. <laughs> you know, so we went on this epic adventure together. Actually, it was just she and I, and we loved every minute of it. When we were driving through Tuscany, she said to me, mom, this looks just like right outside of winters because we would have fields of sunflowers and fields of lavender and wine, you know, in that area. And of course, Napa is very, very similar to that. And I'd say, well, it allows you to appreciate what you have in your own backyard as being really special as well. Mm -hmm. But it's also cool to see that there are similarities uh-huh. between countries because guess what there's similarities between people too and at our core we're all of the human race you know I'm, so it was very poignant it was wonderful it was an incredible um time and experience and of course the people of italy are just so amazing great life lesson look at you being an awesome parent um <laughs> yeah the people of italy are amazing amazing. I still stay in, I lived with a woman. She was incredible. Our family was like, they're, they're still in my lives uh, 14 years later. Like, so mm, they'll, yeah, they'll always be part of your family. Yeah. It was amazing. I love them. <laughs> oh, it's incredible. Hey, Ashley, I'm going to ask you a question around trust because trust is a theme that keeps coming up when I have conversations with people. And um, I guess it's just simply put, if I say, what does trust mean to you? I'm putting you on the spot a little bit. 
Oh, that is a, that's a good one. I'm more of someone who lives in a camp of like innocent until proven guilty, right? Like I, not like I open my doors, my floodgates of maybe with you, Kim, <laughs> of information, <laughs> but I, uh, I like to put my faith and trust in people early on and give them opportunities to show what they were brought on for, right? Or what, you know, what they've got. So I feel as though trust means to me, like identifying someone's person, like who are they? What do they want to do? What do they like? Who are they in your life? Like trust can be in my relationships, my husband, my kids, right? But getting to know them so that you know kind of their place in your world, I feel like, and then empowering them to be able to do that. Because, I mean, without that, you you leave them blindly to just not have direction with trust. <laughs> but I kind of feel as though I trust, I, I'm an over-truster, right? I guess I trust people very quickly to do what, because I want people to do the same with me, that I'll come in, I'll take kind of in my professional setting, that I will be there for you, right? That I will do my job, that I will excel, that I will take the bull by the horns, right? Kind of thing. I want someone to trust that they brought me on for the right reason. So I want that kind of empowerment to do so. So I kind of take the same approach is that I'm making it clear what I want from you and I've gotten to know you and now I empower you to like go out and do that. So I guess, I don't know. I don't know if a good good definition of trust it's a great response and the and it resonated with me on so many levels. I'm a, I'm in the same camp you are. There are other people uh, the other camp is I don't trust you until I get to know you and until you gain my trust, right? Um, because you're from for me, my perspective is you're fearful of being hurt or harmed or some negative consequence of just being open. I'm very much heart out, heart on the sleeve, heart out. I'm a nurse, you know. I blame it on that. But the question that I have is, so like you, I give trust right away. And then what happens when that person does something that, you know, makes you stop and say, I don't know if I can trust you anymore. They lie to you. You find out that they've been dishonest to you or they've done something behind your back that, you know, like, what do you do with that? How do you recover from that? Do you recover from that? So for as long as I've been like working in a more leadership level, I have always been kind of jokingly chastised because I'm the girl that comes forward with all the perspectives. Um, I'm like, listen, guys, you know, he's going through something with his wife at home and like X, Y, and Z, and let's talk to him about it. And people always get on me. They're like, you know, because I sound like a like a country music song. They're like, you know, his dog <laughs> ran away and like, you know. Yeah, but if you play it backwards, you get it yeah. all and so they've always made fun of me, but I think it's actually helped in that scenario. And it, and I can only think of my daughter right off the front, right? Cause she's playing around with this world of like, like deception or whatever. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's trying to better understand why, right? Why did that happen? And mm-hmm. well, just cause someone lies doesn't always mean that it's their problem. Right. Right. People right. lie because they're afraid of something within you or what you're going to do, or what it's going to do to them, right? Like, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of reasons that people lie. And I think that if we can cut to the core of better understanding it, when you understand perspective about why someone does something to break trust, or why someone does something to disappoint you, or anything like that, when you better understand where it came from, one, I think it's, it's a lot easier for me to, like, 
move past it, right? Like if you just lied to me and we never talked about it, I'd be kind of angry or something. Um, but the other thing is like we can figure out solutions and we can look at each other and figure out how do we move on from that, right? And and I, I do that as a parent, right? When Ella has entertained, you know, like lying about something, you know, recently it's been stupid stuff, right? She's testing her boundaries. She's six. Like she's like, yeah. Went and got a snack when she wasn't supposed to, right? Or ate a brownie. And I'm like, you know, I'm like, did you eat that brownie? No, I didn't eat it. Right. And then I'm like, I know you ate it. Like, <laughs> let's talk about it. And, and it's actually kind of a fun discovery. Like she, for her, she had her reasoning. She thought she knew how I was going to be and we needed to talk it through and we're in a better place now. Now we understand why we don't lie and why we, we need to trust each other. And I feel like it, it creates this um, stronger bond if we can get through it. So don't take me this way. I'm not a whipping post, right? At the same time, like if if you continuously find yourself in a position where trust is always being violated, that's a different kind of conversation. Right. But in a world where we all make mistakes and we're all figuring each other out and how to work with each other, I think that some breaches of trust make you reevaluate your relationship and and how you're communicating and what you need to do to get through it. And it makes you stronger in the end. So I feel like trust can be a really good exercise for being better. Okay, you are amazing and wonderful. And I, you know, I just think you're an amazing leader. You're so you're an amazing leader. I say this to people all the time. You're a leader, no matter what your title is, every day in your words and actions. And you are leading by such a phenomenal example right here in this moment. Because if you use appreciative inquiry, if you seek to understand, you can overcome those barriers. Now, it doesn't mean that once you understand, you're actually going to like what was said or, you know, what what it was brought forward, because maybe that means you yourself have to do some work. I myself have to do some work. But the reality is you're at the core of the problem and typically you can move past it. That's exactly what you said. And I also like the the perspective, the lens you look through that says, you know, you can have those conversations with people and the behavior continues to repeat itself over and over. That's a reflection on them and where they are. Like if they're fearful of you and so they're going behind your back and being conniving about, you know, trying to set you up for failure or make you look bad, it's because of something within themselves. And then you have to make a choice, right? right. Do I stay and continue in this environment or do I step away and um, go find an environment where I'm a better fit. And I think a lot of people struggle with that, especially in this day and age, because our relationships aren't as mature. They're not as highly evolved. We're in the soundbite society. You know, we're in the let's get it done. Let's talk. Let's be an influencer by just saying whatever I want to say. But I really don't want to hear your opinion about it. You know, <laughs> it's it's that kind of thing that we're struggling with generationally. And I think that there's a big flow back because I do hear a lot of Gen Z's and beyond saying, I don't want to live a life where I'm constantly tied to my computer. I don't want to live a life where I never get to turn off the TV. I would rather, that's kind of where the gig economy is coming from, I would rather be able to do my job periodically or do this bit and then move on to do something that self-actualizes or, or creates, you know, I'm air quoting balance in my life. And I love the fact that there are so many organizations, Siemens for one, again, in the healthcare space who are saying, even after the pandemic, 
We have now changed our policy, one, so that you can work remotely if that works best for you. And two, our policy is now very outcome-driven. I don't care how many hours a day you work. It's your choice. The outcome is what's important. And so therefore, I'm not, I don't need you to be tied to your computer from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., potentially doing nothing. If you can get your work done in two hours and you're delivering high quality output, then do whatever you need to do for the rest of your life. I love it. I love the demand on it because for so long, I think that um, you mentioned, you know, while you were in leadership, you got your computer, you got your email, you got all those things. And you had to adjust based off the way that you worked to the way that you were going to work with that. And there was no kind of time to understand we were still getting to know how this was all going to pan out, how, what impact was, was the computer, was the smartphone going to have in our lives. We have figured it out now. It has made it so that there is no divide, right? right. Like that we are always connected. And like we just talked about, right? Like it, it is impossible to have a true, it's work-life integration. Yeah. Well, people are starting to resent that in the fact that if I have to give all of my nine to five and be away from my family and be away from all the things, and then I have to be with my family, but be tethered to my phone, I'd rather take this at my own pace. Like I'll still put in my time. I'll make my job. I'll get it done. I mean, I love the idea of that because we will, right? I I think to the point of trust, right? Like, and I think what you're saying, if you start out by believing that people aren't going to do their jobs because they are now not working nine to five in your office. Right. You can't is, see them. That's such a shitty way to think. Right. Mm-hmm. And it is, it starts you out. That person doesn't feel trusted and welcomed. Right. But if we do have outcomes and you have a measurable, do you need to see someone work? Now that looks like a bad waste of time, right? (laughs) It's the fallacy of control. That's all it is. Being able to visually see someone or be on a meeting with them or they have to show up on a meeting, you know, every Monday for two hours so we can talk about our week. That is the fallacy of control. You know, that is the fallacy of we're being productive. I mean, I can't tell you how many times, you know, as a as an executive, I would be in my office just pounding away at whatever email, straightening my office. I need to purge these files. Did I feel productive? I was getting stuff done. I was at work. Right. And now that I am my own boss, every minute counts. And so I'm going to do the value add things and the things that aren't valuable there's no point. And I think that's the point you're trying to make. And I think, you know, for some of the entrants into the workforce, the mentorship becomes harder yeah. when you take people into these scenarios of like working from home, away from a group, or, you know, just basic being around an office environment to understand how you prioritize those things, how you do the value add. But I think you do learn from being around people who are able to do that. And you learn from being around good people who understand business and the company and all those things. But that doesn't mean that that's a stop point for the proposal of not being working from home or flexible work or whatever you want to call it. I think it means we need to rethink the way that we mentor and pair, you know, evolution again. Like, I think we do get stuck in this idea of I'm a big fan and I am a huge fan of evolving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I am never going to be someone who's like, that's the way we've always done it. Oh. Um, because <laughs> that drives me. It's awful. It's awful. I think 
what you take from how you did it are lessons learned. And we think about the future and how the future is changing. Whether you're talking about diversity, whether you're talking about how we work, whether you're talking about parenting, like everything evolves, right? And so I'm a big fan of rethinking how we mentor people, how we grow people within our organizations so that we can evolve and, and have people have flexible work environments and, and feel not resentful for having to spend time away from their families and not do anything for themselves. You know, I, have a, I had a three-hour commute into my office before the pandemic with all the other obligations and that commute. I pretty much got, you know, the couple of minutes that we all spent at dinner, which, you know, pushed right into bedtime with my kids every day, which sucks. And I got zero time for myself, right? There was no, there was no ability to do anything. The pandemic sucks. But what it did give me was all of us realizing we could work from home and me having moments and pockets of time to do things for myself, like hop on that Peloton, right? And I feel healthier, yes, more mentally strung out. <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? Like I'm able to have a little bit more of a concept of balance or integration. Mm-hmm. And, and I think employers who don't see that aren't going to obtain the talent, right? They're not yeah. going to keep the talent. And that's yeah, the younger generations definitely won't put up with it. Like, you know, those of us who are in the older generations, that's the way we were raised. We came out of the, you know, the boomer generation and the Gen X generation. And, you know, it was work hard, have a strong work ethic, be loyal, you know, as much as possible and do the right thing. I'm air quoting again, do the right thing. Well, who's judging what the right thing is? How about do the thing that resonates most with your heart and is going to benefit the greater good? Mm-hmm. I think that's the direction we're going. And, and, and the, the idea of self-care and, and mental wellness is really coming home. And I'm grateful, uh, again, as a healthcare practitioner these last 35 years, you know, mental health was always just a part of health. And then somewhere along the way, it got lost. It's not going to be reimbursed. So therefore, we're not going to address it in the hospital. Right. And it, it was really the wrong step to take. And I'm glad it we're coming full circle and recognizing that mental wellness is a part of overall wellness, even though it took a pandemic to get there. So there are definitely positives that have come from this trying time. So we've been chatting for over an hour. (laughs) 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 Do you have any parting words of wisdom or the message that you would just uh, message or intent that you'd like to release into the universe? You know, I, I will drive this home is that I can't, as people, right, back in whenever we lived in tribes, you know, we existed in colonies, whatever, we lived in a community and we've become so much more isolated, right? We we do it all ourselves now, right? We don't live with within our whole family units under one house. And I think that there is a big piece of us that is struggling because we we have pushed so far away from community. And by leaning into community with women in healthcare, life is life is so much better, right? Being around women, having people like you, right, in my circle that make me be better, right? And make me have hope and make me push harder for what the vision is. And I just think that there's so much value in finding community 
And I think it shouldn't be underestimated. I know we're all so busy and we're all trying to make it work. And the idea maybe of being a part of a community almost seems overwhelming. But there's a place in a community for everyone, right? Whether you're introvert, extrovert, whatever. But I think there's so much value in being a part of it. And that's not just a shameless women in healthcare plug, right? Like be a part of a community like women in healthcare. Um, That is really, really to say, I think it makes such an impact for our mental health, such an impact on our career. And just personally and professionally, I think it's fantastic. So that is my plug. Be a, join a community. Join a community. Be a part of a community. And I just have to say thank you for inviting me to be a part of your community. It is incredibly gratifying. And great things are happening and will continue to happen under your leadership, with your vision, and with this community of incredible people. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and your words. Just amazing person you are. Thank you, Kim. This was wonderful. During today's show, several crucial points were made in relation to gender equality. First and foremost, the importance of community. Finding your community, supporting one another, finding a common vision, and creating a path. Working together toward a common goal has unlimited potential to affect change. Ashley says, while the future of leadership in healthcare might be male, if we take the steps now to fill the pipeline with women, we will be achieving the goal of equality in healthcare in the very near future. There are many ways that this can be done, starting with allies and advocates. There are actually many out there. Seek them out, be them for others. At a minimum, open the door for dialogue. As with Ashley and her cohort of five women, when the path isn't clear, create a path of your own. And remember, keep moving forward. Find your community and support the change you want to see in the world. Every milestone is that much more weight that will tip the scales toward equality. We all need fuel personally, and professionally. What fuels this podcast, the book, and the greatest gift leadership development courses is your interest. If you like what you hear, please connect with me on social media and subscribe to my podcast and YouTube channel. LinkedIn, Kim-Brown-Sims. Facebook, Kim.BrownSims. Instagram, at KimBrownSims underscore. Twitter, at ConsultingKBS. YouTube, Bricked Channel, Podcast Outlets, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, iHeart, Google Podcasts, to name a few. Look for my book coming soon and available for pre-order on my website, kimbrownsims.com. I am also available for speaking engagements, where in my Bricked presentation, I speak to a wide variety of general and corporate audiences with humor and passion about the pricks that have held me back the pricks that I have given as a nurse, and how the pricks in our lives can inspire great, powerful, and urgent action. And remember, take a moment to thank the pricks in your life for giving you the shot in the ass that inspired you to greatness. Have a great day, and remember, don't be a prick. <laughs>